every child and every person has the right to be sad, unhappy, irritable, frustrated. What we do, what we refer to as the badness is the behavior that follows. Hello, and welcome to episode number two of How Do You End Up Doing That with me, Alex Jeffers. In this podcast, we're going to be speaking to people about the jobs they've ended up doing and what got them into doing it, because usually people have got a bit of a story to tell about how they ended up doing what they're currently doing if it's slightly out of the ordinary. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to Rob Jones from Dash Mental Health and Wellbeing, about how he went from studying music at the Royal Bush College of Music and Drama to teaching in a prison to eventually setting up his own company supporting the needs of young people in schools. I've known Rob for a few years now, and I think his journey is fascinating, as well as his knowledge of how the brain works and how it processes emotions, especially as someone who's come from a background of music rather than psychology. If you listen to this and you've got any comments or feedback, anything you'd like to say to me really, feel free to drop me an email to alex at howdyou.com. That's h-o-w-d-y-o-u.com. And I'll take a look at any emails that come across, and hopefully I can get back to you with some answers. So without much further ado, let's dive right into our conversation with Rob. Cheers! <laughs> Hello Rob, how's it going? Uh, thanks for having a chat. Yeah, sorry, we've been having a chat for a little while now. Um, mostly about houses, nothing to do with work or business. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's, I guess, crack on. And um, as an introduction, Rob, you are a, and I'll let you fill in the blank there. Yes, so I refer to myself and my work as being a behaviour, emotional health and well-being specialist and educator. That's a lot of words. Uh, it's a lot to go with a very wordy company name as well. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is nothing to do with uh, Dash, uh, the drug service in Bridgend. No, which you also hilariously bring up because I do get phone calls. Uh, do you? And I actually had one this morning. <laughs> oh, okay. And I have to send them through the new information because what was Dash, the drug, alcohol and self-help is now called New Link. Right. But okay. nobody seems to know that. I didn't know that. Because I have to keep defending myself. I had to defend myself against a guy online who accused me of faking to be that dash to get customers in to pay me money as a fraud. Right. Yeah, I mean, people but, people will complain about anything online just for the sake of complaining. Um, yeah, I think he was a service user of theirs, which is fair enough. But I also point out that I'm not just dash I am dash mental health well-being and behavior. So my stuff specifies in the name what I do, where dash is obviously drugs, alcohol, and self-help. So yeah. yeah. So I literally had to do that this morning. Now some young lady phoned me asking for support for her father. And I was like, sorry to inform you, I'm not the same one. But they'd been given the details by the hospital. So the hospital again, the information wrong as well. Oh, okay. Uh... I, as I do with all of them, I inform them it's the wrong person, but I will send you through the new contact details and that's literally where they send them a text message where the link to new link and also a link to Barod, who also do substance misuse sort of stuff as well. So I'm all about the signposting. Nice, nice. Yes, the course is the section on your website as well <clears throat> for the signposting, what to do if you need support now. Yes. Let's kind of take it back quite a bit 
um and let's go kind of looking at how how did you end up getting into that um how did you you know what what was it what was the driver so if we go back to i guess school was because you work a lot in schools i guess is somewhat relevant yeah. um and was there anything particularly about school that kind of made you think that's a that's a career path for me nope different sort of thing to what I was in school or what I was thinking in school to where I am now. Being in school, initially, I think I thought I'm going to be a football player, rugby player, as most young boys from the Welsh Valleys think, especially when you've got your dad being the secretary and still is the secretary of the local rugby club and has more or less dragged you up by taking you to rugby club to rugby club. I have slept on many, many benches inside rugby clubs. I have seen what, while you were drunk or as a child. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen my fair share of stuff in rugby clubs growing up. So yeah, I've obviously been brought up in that way. So obviously that was my initial thought. And then when I got to comp, I suddenly thought uh, I was going to be a teacher and a musician. They were my two sort of things. So by the time I got to my A levels, I was only studying maths, music, and music technology. I guess <clears throat> the music tech kind of thing is like the bridge there, but like maths and music, you generally don't associate the two as being related unless are... you're in like, I don't know, battles or something. Um, well, it, it, they are highly related because to go down the nerdy side of it, it is mathematical, isn't it? The way that harmonies work and the frequencies and all that is all through ratio. So a two to one ratio is an octave, a one to one ratio is a unison, a three to four ratio is... I can't remember if Tommy how this third or fifth. So they all work. They all work. It all works by ratios, which is very daft. Hence why you have the tuning systems and why the first tuning system was more or less designed by people like Pythagoras as well. So that's the nerdy. <laughs> that's the nerdy. I think that's great. Thing. I love it. I love. I love the. Yeah, uh... yeah. So I got. You know, when I was then, obviously, you know, from that, I actually did go on to university and study music, but we did creative music technology. That there though was also what broadened my horizon to essentially what was going to be music therapy. So initially I thought I was doing that. I liked the idea of how the brain worked when it came to music and how the different functionality of the brain. And then people with things like savantism or synesthesia, when you have the blending of the senses, so people like hear colors and there's a guy in England who tastes words. So if you say certain words to him, he gets different tastes in his mouth. Um, other words like, you know, not really good. Okay, so it's not like you say the word apple and you can taste an apple. It's more you say the word like the name Brian, you'll taste taste mushrooms. What? <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. If I find there was a documentary on it above synesthesia, and he's on there, and he, he's, a, he's a landlord in a pub as well, so it's a nightmare for him because he can smell all the stuff in the pub. Then also, he's tasting food in his mouth when people are talking to him. What? I mean, yeah. that's, it's just amazing. Like, I find synesthesia so fascinating. Yeah, and I'm annoyed by myself that I'm not a synesthetist. Yeah, so yeah. I remember reading about it. It was absolutely amazing, the idea of that. It's like, yeah, that's not me. But we had a lecturer I used to talk about this because she had synesthesia, but he saw music in three-dimensional sort of space. So if she wrote, if you used to do things like graphic scores, you write you draw out what the music does rather than doing knots and on dots and staves. Okay. And she said, this is my piece of music. And then she'd cone it and look down and says, that's what it looks like. 
so just from looking how people's brains worked in that way when it comes to music and also for myself I come from a non-musical family, but yet I fell into music. But then after my degree in music, I actually went on to get my teaching PGC and ended up working in Cross Keys College teaching music and also doing one-to-one support for students with learning difficulties who had studied music and also doing math, essential skills, maths and English to hairdressers, beauticians, travel and tourism students, to everyone, basically. So for the next 12 years, I was doing various things. So went from Crosskeys College, went down to Southampton, where I then worked with apprentices and functional skills, which is the English equivalent of essential skills. So I was in charge of the apprenticeship students all doing basic English and maths. If they came to the college without GCSEs in English and maths or needed a lift up in their GCSEs, I would be the one sorting them out on what English and math course they'd have to do and also teaching it. And then from that, I ended up in Park Prison teaching. That wasn't just a coincidental sort of thing of I ended up from teaching into a prison. No, I moved from Southampton back to Wales, did um, a maternity cover for a while with apprentices, again, doing essential skills. And then obviously a full-time job came up teaching in Park Prison. So I just went for it. Then they had a gap in the music department. Well, I say music department, they had a gap for a music teacher. So I just sort of walked to the office. I had a chat to the head and he was like, awesome. And I was like, oh yeah, but I'm also going to be going on holiday for about four weeks because I'm getting married and going on my honeymoon. Right. And he said, oh, when you come back, uh, do you want to be the music teacher? I was like, okay. So was there anything yeah. about like the prison? Was there something that made you think, oh, you know, I want to help these people specifically, or was it purely a location-based uh, career move? My my idea when it comes to learning and education, especially when I've gone through my teaching, education isn't something that should stop at 16, which is something that I still carry on with my belief of today. So if I do today, I still mention that, the fact that we, in our sort of educational system, we go, right, you've got to do everything until GCSEs, because the GCSE is the most important thing. But if anyone ever gets to GCSEs, they know that when they do the GCSEs, they then suddenly go, so what are you doing for your A-levels? Yeah. And they're like, well, you said my GCSE is the most important. Mm. Yeah, but I'm going to get A-levels because if you want to go to university, it's like, what, what do you mean university? I've got my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the idea that, you know, 16, post-16, and then obviously you have your post-16 stuff. And then it's like, so to me, education shouldn't stop when school stops like everyone progressively learns my my own learning has continued on and on and on you know i i got my degree in 2010 i got my teaching qualification by the end of 2020, 2012 because i worked whilst getting it and then i got my master's in 2021 even myself i'm still learning over all that time and that space as well For me then it's like okay well if everyone who is in normal society is able to learn when they want because you can go anywhere now and go to a college there's adult learning centers and all that it's like well prisons obviously have learning and they deserve the opportunities to learn because what you find when you get there is a lot of the learners didn't do well in school or had learning differences or also neurodivergence so when i was there it was great to be with these inmates because some of them were like yeah, I didn't do well in school or I didn't go to school. I was expelled from school. So you've got their stories as well. And there is research to show correlation between poor academic outcomes and exclusions with inmates and the rate of people going to prisons. Oh, it's okay. not, not causational, it's correlating. Right. So if you're expelled from school, that does not equal prison. There's a higher chance you may end up 
in a criminal path if you are excluded from school. There's a big argument about it in England at the moment about the um, that pathway of exclusion to prison, which is like, yeah, it's correlative, not causative. Yeah, I think my favourite example of the, the like the difference between correlation and causation is you're more likely to wake up with a headache if you go to sleep with your shoes on. That's the, the, the cause is not that you have your shoes on. The cause is probably that you've got a hangover. Uh, you're drunk, so you've fallen asleep with your shoes on. The, but yeah. there's a correlation between having your shoes yeah. on when you wake up and having a hangover and having a headache. Yeah, and, and these are the sort of things, like, you know, you see it quite a lot. Like I said, when I did my master's, because obviously, you know, I did my undergraduate in music, got my teaching qualification next, and my master's then was in psychology. And obviously, that's part of the thing you talk about there is you can see lots of stuff that are correlating. Like, you see both things increase over time, but it doesn't mean they're both at the but one affects the other. It just happens to be they happen at the same time. So what? Yeah. 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 You know, yes, you're more likely to wake up with a headache if your shoes are on. But that's you said. The cause is alcohol, not the shoes. Yes. But yeah, yeah. put the together, you'll be like, well, just stop sitting with your shoes on. <laughs> that's, that's not the problem. That's not the problem. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was interesting being in the prison. Like I said, start off with English and maths, which is interesting because yet again, you don't have a learning assistant, so you don't have like a, a teaching assistant with you. You have a prisoner who has been trained to be your teaching assistant, so they're also helping the prisoners as well. Oh, okay. So as well, they have their own like little society and their own little world and stuff. So yeah, they have jobs. So they don't just do education; they do education to get jobs. You know, in the prison I was in in Park, there's a print shop, there's an electronic shop, there's a work a wood workshop, there's kitchens. You could be a gardener, you could be maintenance. So then doing music was even better because then I had my classroom, which I taught in. I had a studio space then, which we did all our recordings and obviously lots of the inmates were coming in with their raps. And so I was teaching them how to make beats, how to record their raps, how to then make themselves sound like T-Pain. So all that sort of stuff. You know, it's, it's great because they just, for them, it's, it's almost getting them back to that childlike state of just play. Yeah. Because if you don't like it, you just delete it and just yeah. don't click save. Like, you know, you can just do what you want. You can mess around with this stuff as much as you want. You can't break it. Just keep going and going until you get somewhere you like. Was and there, I used... um, like, a, would you say that, I guess, from, like, any of the other kind of music teaching that you've done, the, the like, the levels of creativity within the prison were more? Like, the... I guess, you know, or di was it just like a different, was there a noticeable difference between the sort of stuff that people wanted to make in prison compared to want to make outside in like a college? Yes. Yeah, so when I was in the college doing it, because even when I sort of shifted out from music and started more on the skills side, my sort of notice was that obviously, you know, everyone there is like, they played guitar, they played drums, you know, they were like saxophonist or something like that or singer. And it was all like, quite heavy done the sort of rock music or acoustic stuff, you know, there's that. Going to the prison, everything was rap or dance and drum and bass and electronic and that sort of stuff. So it was like the shift in ideas of what we wanted was completely different. So to sort of do the teaching of it was completely different in the sense that I didn't have to go around to some like, you know, guitar riffs and working on chordal structures and what sort of worked around the riffs they were writing because they just wanted to do like chords or they just wanted to do like a little three note melody because there wasn't, the music they wanted to do wasn't based around like high level of musicality, if you will. It's more about what works well with what. Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. Used to, um, we used to, what I used to do with a lot of them was is 
we'd get them to write like a little melody or put a chord sequence. So I'd teach them the stru- basic structure of a chord and that sort of stuff, which we did a little bit of music theory. Then it was how to put the chords together, what works with what. Yet again, use your ears. If you don't like the sound of it, it doesn't work. If you like the sound of it, it works. I can't tell you any different. And then it was like, we used, because obviously we're using things like um, Logic, which is what they had in the prison. It was like, right, each of these now are your little building blocks. So like, like a Lego thing now, you can build your little blocks. And from these little squares, you just put them in place. You know, it's a four-bar rhythm, a two-bar rhythm, uh, an eight-bar drum loop. Just put it in and you just build. And because we, you know, show them how to color coordinate, you know, make it color coordinated, so you can make it work. And you just literally like building blocks. Like, right, here's your drum sample. Here's your chords. Here's your melody. Here's some effects. Build. And that's the way we used to look at it. It was always build something rather than go in, oh, well, I'm going to go from this transition of chords. I'm going to do a modulation year. Then I'm going to, you know, there was no high level music theory. It was just, I like this pattern. I like this pattern. I like this pattern. Awesome. Built into a song. And obviously when it came to the raps, yeah, it was more of the sound production then of how to EQ their voice and how to make it sound like they're on a telephone and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's just that cliche stuff you hear in lots of rap songs. They were like little skits at the start where they used to pretend they were on the phone to somebody from their cell and all that sort of stuff. And oh, nice. Fun and enjoyable for them. And then we started, when I was working up towards, like, you know, getting something in, it was then working up towards, okay, how do I teach them how to set up sound stuff? So if somebody comes in to do a talk, we can say, right, we got inmates here who can come down and set your microphones up with you and put all the sound right for you. If you've got somebody coming in, like, you know, they would hold, like, we started working towards the idea of doing open mics in the in the library. Okay. So they could come along, we'd set everything up, and people could just come along and, like, do um, acapella raps, or you know, they could put a beat down and do a rap over it and all that sort of stuff. So, yet again, how can we set that up uh, without me having to go with and plug everything in because I'm the one with the knowledge? How do I get other people to do it where then they can come along and say, we got set up over here. And I go, right, cool. Here's the equipment. But then pandemic came around because I have psoriasis and I was on immunosuppressants. I wasn't allowed to go to work for six months. Right. Then by the time that all started coming to an end, I'd found another job working with students with behavior and emotional and social difficulties in a secondary school. So that was then going to the school, collecting these four young men from the school in a minibus, taking them to a community center, teaching and educating them off-site whilst also then working on their well-being and behaviors. We did some basic English and maths, and then we would go off to places like Barry Sidings or down to Cardiff Bay or even just up the bulk and just get ice cream with the sheep. At the top of the bulk. Yeah, sit, chill, talk, be, you know, even take to like Talbot Green and just let them walk around Tesco to like work on like their social skills. Okay. Because the first time we went there, they used to just try to run off and hide amongst the clothes. Right. Okay. <laughs> but then it was fun. And for me, it was like, well, this is just mildly annoying. I'm just going to walk upstairs, walk around, then go back downstairs because I'm not chasing you. And this is the sort of thing what I found was working with these young people was if you chase them, they run more. If you left them to it, they come back. What sort of age range was this? They were year nines when I first had them. So okay. they would have been 13 to 14. Yeah, 13 to 14 year olds. How long did you stay there? I was with them. It was a two year contract. Uh, so I stayed with them for the two years. So I left them at the end of year 10, which is a shame because obviously they still actually had another year of education. But the school also, because we, 
we had four, we went up to six, and then dropped down to three because we actually got three of them back into school. Oh, like, okay. Could we sort of supported their behavior in a way that it was like, okay, we now understand how to support you. We'll work on you again to help you get your GCSEs. So then the school said it wasn't cost effective to just have three boys going off site because it was through an external company as well. So the school wouldn't run it themselves. They'd actually employed a company to do it that I was then working for. Is this like a common thing in many schools to have this external support for quite a quite a small section? You know, like I, I think about school, like I you know went to Brintag, um, which has got three thousand students. It's insanely big. Um, to, to the thought of having employing a single person to work with four kids, like four four young yeah. adults, it just seems. I don't think that sort of thing would have ever happened when I was in school. Each local authority does things differently. So what I was seen as as part of what would be called like IOTA, so education other than at school. So this could be done in multiple ways. So I know in the Bridgend area, that normally means that a child is referred to the bridge and the bridge then do the IOTAS package. So that, that doesn't matter whether it's for their well-being or behavior, they will find a support package for that child, whether it means they go to the bridge and they get taught there in small classes or with another learner that I work with who's through the bridge, his Yotas packages, he has a tutor that goes to the house for three hours every day and he gets taught in the house. And then I go there three times a week and do his well-being. Start of the package we got for him going. So it all does that. So I know Cardiff, I think the Cardiff Youth Service run the Yotas sort of stuff. So you've got to refer into it and when spaces become available, people go to it. So it is different in every local authority in this school. Ton Revel just thought, right, we'll bring a third party agency in to do it because to get these students down the local authority pathway might have taken too long because I got children I work with now, even Bridgend, who were on the referral for the bridge, but the panel hasn't sat yet, but they've been referred since like June last June this year. And wow. the panel hasn't sat yet. You know, in, in terms of local authority, uh, delays of like six, seven, eight months are perfectly normal, but in terms of children's education, that's that's quite a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, so then it's like, well, then you've got to support that child at home. So that's why I go out and I visit them and make sure they're okay. Sometimes they get supplied with work. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you've got to argue for them to be sent work. It's like schools don't like to send work home to children if they're not come to school because then it seems like they're encouraging home learning right. and home education. But it's like, yeah, but you're not because this child is at home for a specific reason. They can't attend your school due to reasons. They're now waiting to go to their next place. They can't go to the next place because of reasons. So you can provide them an education because you know where they're going. Yeah. If they were just not come to school, then I understand why you'd say, yeah, we can't give you work. But no, these are on a pathway to somewhere else. But like I say, then the panel might sit. If they're accepted, brilliant. Then you've got to wait for a space. Ah, yeah. What, what sort of happens then if they don't get accepted by the panel? Like, well, would they, then they just stuck in limbo? Then the option is the school find another alternative, re-refer, or they sometimes the child ends up getting deregistered from school, then is electively home educated. Oh, okay. And that from experience of uh, not from my own experience, but through speaking to people, uh, I've been home educated. There's a bit of air quotation marks going on there. It's mostly just issue. You know, there's not a lot of education happening there because parents can't can't you know educate you know, and what you find with lots of these ones who do fall down those pathways and sometimes may get electively home educated 
there's normally something underlying. So the ones I know with the schools I'm working with are either diagnosed ASD or possibly autistic or neuro or some other neurotype, whether it's ADHD. And even with the boys I was working with in Tonarevel doing that behavior support, the one was like ASD, ADHD, Tourette's with optional oppositional defiance disorders, they called it. Another one had high levels of trauma. Another one was possibly autistic with ADHD. One then was diagnosed ADHD whilst I was with him. So they all had underlying needs that needed to be met to ensure that they could be educated. And sometimes if you ignore those needs because all you worry about is getting the education, that's why you get the as what they would see as challenging behavior or extreme behaviors. Yeah. yeah. So it was like you're you're focusing on the wrong end of the spectrum. You're instead of going for if you had like their emotional needs and behavior on one side and their academic stuff, there are two over there. You're trying to teach them, but you've got to make sure they are teachable first. Yeah. So to make sure, and that's sort of the stuff now, like I say, from doing that, this is my, as you say, my wild trajectory of sitting in the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, sticking screws and pins inside a piano to make it sound percussive <laughs> to now where I am here. Yeah. So yes, from doing that, so yeah, your your so the 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 two year contract comes to an end, um, and then what what like what's next? What do you do next after that? Well, what I started doing was whilst that contract was starting to wind into like its last six months, I set myself up as my business, and I just sent emails through to all the comprehensive schools in Bridgend, offering initially what I referred to as like psychoeducational support for learners who need support. So from being in the schools as well, obviously, you know, mental health needs are on the increase. What I saw with Tonarevel was they were going to the pastoral member staff and she was giving them like a leaflet from Mind or a leaflet from Samaritans or a booklet from Young Minds. Then saying, we'll refer you to the counsellor, we'll refer you for Elsa. Goodbye. Right. That's just it. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. So you just, as you say, as lots of people do, yeah, you signpost to the professionals. I was like, but you, you've got a lot of people here where you could surely group some of these kids together and sit with them and educate them. Because the biggest thing I've got, we all know that there's a massive shift in our culture of like, you know, having all the mental health awareness and, you know, everything now has some level of mental health attached where, you know, we got the whole stuff that advertises on ITV, you know, you got your your Andy Mann club sort of stuff and all these charities and all these groups bringing around awareness, but that's what it is. It's generally awareness and support. What I normally generally see what happens is people, when they do awareness, it's sort of like, here's a drill. And now everyone's walking around with drills in the hand. They're going, but what do I do with the drill? Yeah. Because drill has multi-uses. You can't just drill holes with it. You can also screw things in with it. You can also use boring holes. And that's it, because they've raised awareness. And that's what it is. Everyone is now like hyper aware of their mental health, their well-being. And they all understand their feelings and emotions, but they don't then know what to do about it because they've just been made aware about it. Yeah, yeah. You kind of it's that that level of awareness isn't isn't necessarily helpful if you don't know in which direction yeah. to to point it. And then you know you've got the rise of like you know your TikTok influencers who talk about stuff. And, you know they'll say like you know you see the tip one go drop a finger if you do this, drop a finger if you do this. So if you drop five fingers down, you might be autistic. It's like yes and no. Because it doesn't work like that. It's not a linear pattern. It's a, it's a spiky demographic. Like, you know, it's a spiky profile you get. It's not all autistic people do this. It's an autistic person could do this. 
but also a neurotypical person could do this. Like we all yeah. have hobbies and interests that are probably highly interestable to us. There's somebody else is like, well, why are you really into that? It's like, because I just like it. And they were, oh, well, you've got a touch of autism. That's like, no, I just really like it. Like if you wanted to say about people being really like, you know, if, you know, people say like, you know, if you have a massive fascination with trains, they could be autistic because they thought they think about well, it's trains and all they do. Okay. What about the plethora of men who walk around wearing the same football shirts to each other and talk nothing but football? Are they also autistic? Yeah. 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 It's the, that, that obsession. That's... And, but the, the, it's the, I guess people pick up on it and like the, you know, things that they associate with not, like a lot of the time it comes down to, it's, it's not like a, a manly thing like football rugby you know these are these are sport you know sports you can't be autistic if you like sports because sports are a man's thing to do whereas if you like trains or birds or space or dinosaurs then that's autism because you're you're obsessed with those things and we don't see those things as being um yeah like like man's things a lot of the time and these are the sort of things so you know and you've got to get people around that idea of like you know the tiktok influences and like you know the whole misunderstanding the terminology for me then i was like okay how can we build something that gives children not just the awareness around their well-being and giving them sort of correct information but also support them with the understanding of it so i went through a whole program design of sort of going right okay what is the basics and where do i want to end so i started with saying right if we sit with children go this is your brain then from that, this is how our brain functions. These are some of the chemicals that go on in there. These are how they interact together. This is what we call emotions. Here are the different ideas of what emotions are because there's no consensus on what an emotion is. Mm-hmm. And there's different perspectives of how emotions come about, whether that is your theories that we're all born with emotions and then we develop them or whether we construct them in the moment through our interpretation of what's going on around us and also through the influence of people around us. So we do all that. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about, you know, the fact there's not good and bad emotions. We have comfortable and uncomfortable. So it's not wrong to be sad. It's not wrong to be angry. They're just uncomfortable. Well, that's interesting. Cause I think then like, you know, uh, my kids, uh, well, they're six, six and three. There's this book uh, called The Color Monster that they quite liked for quite a while. You probably know about it for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, the Color Monster is a book about a monster who's made up of lots of different colors. Uh, <laughs> there's his red color is anger, his blue is sadness, um, and it's all the the book is all about how the color monsters all jumbled up and they separate all of his feelings out into different jars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> separate them yeah. out and yeah i've never thought about them as being because i think even with the kids i've described them as being like bad feelings like angry yeah. and sad and they're good feelings to be happy and calm and loved um but yeah putting that spin on it of comfortable and uncomfortable emotions i think makes a lot it's a lot more sense and makes the like even for my kids makes would make them feel a lot more comfortable about being yeah. having an uncomfortable emotion like they're they're not suddenly feeling this is bad because I'm sad. They're like, I don't like this, but it's okay because it's just a thing. You can't say that feeling sad is bad because there are times when feeling sad is appropriate. And you can't say that anger is bad because there's times you have every right to feel angry. Mm. The same thing, you can't say that being happy is good. 
because sometimes you probably shouldn't be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, uh, yeah, makes a lot of sense. It's it's the comfortable, is the motion right for that moment? Every child and every person has the right to be sad, unhappy, irritable, frustrated. What we do, what we refer to as the badness is the behavior that follows. So if your child is angry, so I know you have two girls and they could be any given time in your house where one child is playing, the other one comes along and just takes something off the other one. And then the, the one who's had the thing taken away gets upset and angry, might walk over to their sister and punch them mm. or slap them or pull their hair. The emotional response of feeling angry. Yes feel angry. The behavioral response of physically attacking or hitting out or striking your sister, not good. So that's why we say it's a bad emotion because it normally the emotion gets followed by a bad behavior or unwanted behaviors. I, I don't call it bad behavior, unwanted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If your daughter got angry, cried, screamed, but didn't then have the physicalness, then that's okay. Cause she has every right to get emotional and express it in what is seen as a safe unwanted way going up to you and saying she took this off me and great but then to walk over to a sister and lamp her one not so good because now you've got well i gotta punish oh i gotta give you a consequence of taking that off your sister and upsetting her but i'm also not going to give you a consequence for punching your sister for that yes if you just went if she just cried and then came and told you then the only the other sister would have the consequence because she's the one who took something off Mm. so this is why yeah, being like these uncomfortable, it's the emo- it's the behavioral response to the emotion that we generally label as being good or bad, not the emotion itself. And unfortunately, we've shifted that labeling the good of bad to the emotion. So we all have it. And like you say, and it's even the same thing, you know, when somebody gets angry, is it really anger or are they feeling frustrated, sad, lonely, isolated, rejected? But all they know how to do is express anger by getting red in the face and clenching and tensing up. It's a misunderstanding of what is actually going on. You normally see things presented as like the iceberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tip of the iceberg and then the the, the, the mountain underneath. Yeah. Um, it's all the stuff underneath. It. And this is what I say. So I have the conversation, especially looked after children, having these conversations with them and went through that journey of, you know, this is your brain. These are all the different parts of your brain. This is your limbic system. This is how that connects to your body. When you feel these things, this is what they are. These are emotions. This is what it means to feel happy. This is what it means to feel sad. This is why we sort of refer to them as comfortable, uncomfortable. And then we talk about when do you feel comfortable and when don't you feel comfortable? And then what can you do to support those emotions? Then how do they become behavior? So how does that that mental feeling become a physical response? And what can you do about it? And then shift that mindset, like you're saying then of, Yes, you have the right to feel sad, you have the right to feel angry, but you do not hold the right to cause distress and harm to another person because of how you feel. Even if they are the one that's wronged you, you shouldn't just walk over there and lamp them one in the face, even though that's what you really, really want to do. Yeah. Because it's not it's not gonna work out best for you. Mm. If you're in a school, which a lot of these children are, and somebody upsets you and you walk over and punch them. Lots of schools will only see the physical act of you punching them. They will not see the preceding event before that caused you to have the emotional emotions that led you to that behavior. Yeah, of course, because the school, like in a in a school situation, I guess they kind of they recognize more the the not the worst, but you know the the, the bigger mm-hmm. incident, and they the more noticeable. You can yeah. see you punching someone. You can't see 
the effect of words on a person. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, so that it's, it's something that I guess kids really need to need to understand for a young age. Speaking from experience of my youngest child being more likely to uh, lash out and punch her sister than the eldest one, who will just cry and come running. But the yeah, the youngest one's always been a bit more ang like anger, and I guess it's that like like you were saying yeah. the the tip of the iceberg. She when she was a baby before she could talk, she used to. Um, She'd like bang her head against the wall, um, yep. or she'd like be crawling along on the floor and just start like banging her head on the floor, and we'd be like, "Ah, oh, what's wrong with her? Like, what's going on?" Did a bunch of reading into it, and it was like, it, it seems like the sort of thing. What seemed at the time like she would, she was just getting frustrated because she couldn't tell us what she wanted, or she couldn't walk, um, and she wanted to do that thing, and she was so frustrated by that, it came out in this anger, um, which. Yep. For quite a while, she's much better now, but for a lot of the time when she was like between two and three, she used to just punch her sister for no good reason. Um, yeah. Which... And then these and these are the sort of learning things that children go through and that's where they find the boundaries and limits of what they can and can't do is by doing it. How am I meant to know what I can and can't do if I don't do it and see the consequence of my action or my of my response? And, you know, it's always that sort of thing that people say, you know, they're I hate the phrase like seeking attention. They're just doing it to get attention. It's like, well, yes, because they want attention. And if somebody wants attention, it's because there's a need for attention. So what is the reason they want, they need to meet that need? Is it because they've been ignored? Is it because they haven't had any interaction for the day? Is it because they're frustrated and they don't know how to express themselves appropriately? So they're going to do something to gain attention because they just want attention, but they don't know what it is they really want. So they will misbehave. They will say things out of turn because they just want your attention. So it's more of like, and as lots of people say now, it's not attention seeking, but connection seeking. So they're trying to seek connection with someone, whether that is good or bad. I want you to talk to me, so I'm going to do anything I can to get your attention. So then lots of times they'll say, you know, the child will just be going like, you know, my son has a fun thing at the moment. He just likes going, ah, ah. And he's like, what? He doesn't know. But you just make that noise. He's like, well, what are you making that noise for? And he can't tell you. But then some people say, oh, just ignore him. But I will know because he wants something. He just doesn't know how to express it. You know, again, he's four. He yeah. does not know how to express it yet. So if I ignore him, he may learn the behavior of it. When I need something, people won't come. Okay. That's, so yeah. I go and say, what's the matter? And him not give me a response, which I'm fine with yet again. It's like, you know, you know I'm 36. I have a good understanding that he's just going to make noises and not talk to me. <laughs> but I'd rather do that and him get the understanding of, oh, well, when I need help, someone will come rather than making the noise and people saying like, stop making that noise, shut up, stop being a baby, which are not productive or conducive to that behavior. And he's just going to go, well, if I need help, people tell me to stop. So I'll stop asking for help. And therefore they bottle it up. Yeah. And then who knows what effect that'll have on them in the future, because there's lots of literature that does show that when people get to high levels of stress and anxiety and they don't, express it in a safe and suitable manner it does have an effect on their body okay something that's called 
um, you know, we have something that's called the HPA axis, which obviously adds into something else that's called polyvagal theory. So when we get stressed in our brains, our, you know, the amygdala will tell us that sort of emotional response that we need. Hippocampus will give us contextualization of it, whether it's through memory or whether it's through emotional memory. So we normally attach emotions to memories to make them easier to retrieve or to sort of reconstruct. The area of the brain then is called the hypothalamus is where we generally have that sort of stress response in us. And that will start off. It, it, it isn't part of the, it's not the stress response. It's the starting point of our stress response. So that starts the cortisol going in our brain, which then goes to the pituitary gland in the brain, which then connects down to the adrenal glands near the kidneys. So HPA, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal. Right. So that is literally in that axis, we've gone from the brain to the kidneys. And knowing that we're having the release of cortisol and adrenaline, both of which are not good for us because we need them. Mm-hmm. But as with anything in life, too much is a bad thing. Yeah. And what happens is if you are in a stressed response and you don't deal with the stress, sometimes you might just persevere and get on with it. But that stress response hasn't stopped in your body. Okay. Yeah. And if your body is under stress, your body's under stress, even if you mentally tell yourself you're not stressed. And then that will have a detrimental effect because yet again, through that HPA, it starts what we say is like your polyvagal sort of stuff. So you have the vagus nerves in your neck, which connect your brain to the different organs in your body. And that's why when you get into that sort of, that also works with our autonomic nervous system, which is broken into two parts. You have your parasympathetic and sympathetic sides. The one puts you into fight and flight. The other one is your freeze. So obviously, if you're getting wound up, you go into that fight and flight. That's why your heart starts racing. You start breathing faster. You get sweaty, clench. That's because your body's on that side. Also, being in that fight and flight, it stops your stomach from digesting food. It stops you wanting to urinate. Because if you're going into a fight response you don't want to be wasting energy on doing internal functions of your body. So it stops you doing that because it's oh. a throwback evolutionary to when we used to have to run away from things that were going to kill us. Mm. If you were running away from an animal and you needed a pee, that's not a good thing. No. So it just cuts off all the body functions and it'll send all blood to your extremities to get lots of energy going. This so you can run, you can fight, you can do whatever because fight and flight. That's essentially it. You're either going to fight what you is threatening you or you're going to run away from it. Mm-hmm. The other side of it, which as you put it in our freeze response, that means we we'll don't do anything, and also it's our relaxed state. So that's why we our heart rate slows down, we can breathe more calmly, our heart rate drops, our body goes to the digestive, our urination, that's why we get it in that side. So we're up, our nervous system is split into two as well. But it does that automatically, hence the autonomic nervous system. And so we got that in the children as well. This just happens to them. And then yeah. we have what? You only call the window tolerance. You have your hyper hyper arousal. Yet again, fight and flight. Hypo arousal. So that's the opposite to freeze. You then have your window of tolerance. So that's that sort of area of what you can tolerate. And well, we try to do then when we work with these young people, and what I try to do is open that window of tolerance so they can tolerate more before falling into these either sides of these things. Uh, so okay. more stress is suitably. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you don't kick into fight and flight so quickly because where I normally talk to things, well, there's lots and lots of great theories. And yet again, all this information I'm telling you, I tell 13 or 14 year old children. Yeah. Because to me, 
great being aware about how your body responds to stress and telling them they might tend to be achy and all. But why? Why does that happen? Mm. Here's why, because there's lots of literature written on it. Let's look at it. Uh, how does that then sit with you as a person? And what are your, as we say, your triggers and glimmers, as they like to put it? You know, what triggers you to do these things? But what are the glimmers that make you hold on to hope? So you look at the two sides of it. You can't just focus negatively. You've got to look at the positives as well. Same thing as when you do assessments on people. So I'd give them like questionnaires about stuff, especially one that's based on PERMA, which is positive psychology stuff. If they score like a five out of 10, I don't say, oh, why a five? I say, oh, I say, oh how come it's not a four? Okay. What, what's made you go up to a five? Like, why not a four? What's the difference between a four and a five? What makes you move up? Okay, if that makes you move up to a five, how can we use that information to move your five to a six? So we look upwards not looking down where they are okay Remember what we used to strive to help them do better so when i meet kids in schools because obviously you know from all that work of working with children doing that psychoeducation that's now led me on to supporting children who have what's called school-based avoidance or attendance difficulties so when i do meet some of them in the school and we walk around we're talking i'll ask them where's your anxiety feeling and they'll say oh you know if you're three out of ten and I was going to say, how come not two? Why, why three? Was it today that's made you a bit better for being here? Right. Okay. And we look at that reason, not like, oh, what's my stress you out about being here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I want you to do, right, is really think about everything that's making you anxious. And then I want yeah. you to point to them and really bring your attention to them. But also, that's also how you support them as well. Mm. You point out, you find out their anxieties and then talk about their anxieties because when you have young people and you have them in these states of where they find themselves to feel uncomfortable and safe, you've got to work with them to understand why they think that and how you can shift their mindset towards, well, why is it not actually safe? You know, they'll say like, oh, you know, there's lots of kids in the corridors. It's like, okay, well, over time, we'll get to stand in the corridor with lots of kids with me, of course, I'm not going to lay, I'm just going to push you on to a group of kids and go, let me know how it goes. No, you have that conversation. You say, oh, so what is it about the children being here? What is it? And they say, oh, it's loud, it's this, it's that, it's this, okay. Then what can you do as a person to help yourself in that situation? Because it's all well and good, again, pointing out what is what they find to be wrong. But what good is that if you're not then going to support them with finding how to help themselves? Yeah, Yet again, you've equipped them with a drill, and now you've given them a bit of wood. Yeah. But you haven't given them the bit they need yeah. to then drill the hole yeah 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 or even i told them what it is they're supposed to be making no so and that's what i mean so you've got to build all these things around them and all these structures around them and that's part of why i do now as well is that's what i tried to so still do the little bit of psychoeducation with kids when they need it but also now it's grown to the fact now i'm working with the schools working with various other schools at the bridgend area uh working with the bridgend carers center I also work with a group called Pains Voices in Wales, which is like a, a Wales-based support net, network for everything from racism in schools right the way through to neurodivergence in schools. And it's basically giving them the information of what it is that's going on for these young people, how to understand it, and therefore the appropriate way of supporting it. Because mm -hmm. lots of schools will, you know, a child can't get to school. And they'll be like, why? And like, well, the parents will bring them in. So, okay, yeah, but why does the child say they can't come to school? Like, go draw it all the way down to get to that child 
yeah. and inform that child, find out their need. And then as the people around that need, how do we support that need? Mm-hmm. Like I say, everyone looks at, well, what about the learning? What about the learning? It's like, yeah, but if they're not emotionally safe, they're not going to learn. Because yet again, if your brain is not functioning in the idea of, I feel safe, as we say, you know, your amygdala's firing off, the hippocampus is contextualizing all the memories, the hypothalamus is starting the cortisol in you, you've obviously got that stress response. The cingulate gyrus, which sits around that area underneath the cortex, is also trying to emotionally regulate you. The prefrontal cortex or the ventromedial area, which is like sort of around this sort of area by here. That's a, where between the eyebrows at the front. Essentially, yes. Yeah, ventromedial is like middle side bit sort of thing. And obviously, because we've got the two hemispheres. And then where all that goes, and that's where our executive functions sort of generally function from. So that's like our decision making all the sort of stuff you need for like learning and sitting quietly in classrooms is there. So if all your brain is running haywire and that area is then going to tell anything to calm down, it's like being on a bus with a bunch of naughty kids. Right. Okay. The only way you're going to get them all to calm down is by stopping and dealing with it. So if that part of your brain is trying to drive and can't because everything else is going haywire behind it, it's going to stop. Therefore learning cannot take place. And that makes perfect sense to think like that, you know, you need the, the like the driver, essentially, yeah. you know, you need, you need Trev with his cap on at the front of the, uh, yeah. at the front of the bus to be having the full attention to know how to navigate the road, uh, watch out for stop signs, watch out for traffic lights. Um, so they're doing all that whilst trying to keep the person safe, whilst taking in all the sensory stuff that's going on as well. After a while, what we'll find with lots of teachers, they'll say, oh, well, they cope well in class. Or they, they do okay in class, like, yeah, but they're coping. They're yeah. not thriving. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. sitting, they're doing what's asked of them, and they leave. But nothing says they've actually learnt. And then what happens is and they, when the child realises they haven't learnt or they can't retain the information, they get stressed, which makes them then not want to go to the class because they're stressed. And if they go to class, they become stressed. Yeah. So they avoid going to class because now they feel less stressed. The problem is then the more they're not in class, the more stressed they feel about returning to class. Yeah, there's that, just, the, 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 the vicious cycle of uh, so worry. That's, that's the other stuff that I got to do with them. And then is slowly build them up. So you do things through like a, through what, like, you know, systematic, systematic desensitization. So you might see it with things like the Speakman's on this morning. Like you might, I don't know whether you have this morning on whilst you're sat working at home. Nope, nope. But um, so yeah, so normally what the Speakman's do and lots of therapists do is what they call systematic desensitization. So what is someone's fear and how do you slowly improve their fear of it so they no longer fear it? So you do it by exposing them to what is fearful. Okay. But you don't do it in the sense of, ah, you have a lovely fear of spiders. Get in that room full of spiders. Right. (laughs) When it comes to schools, that's generally what they do. They Mm. go, you find it hard to be in school, come to school and go to class. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you, you've just missed like lots of points in this and so what I do with the students is I find out where they are so emotionally where they are what are they able to do today or tomorrow that we can build from mm-hmm. so if they say they all get the same choice I can meet them in the house I can meet them in the school car park I can meet them in the reception wherever they want to meet that's where we'll meet and then from there it'll be where do you want to go next do you want to walk the corridors do you want to stay in the car park and then you do that. And then you do that for a couple of weeks, couple of visits. And then you go, okay, where do you want to go now? 
do you want to go to a wellbeing hub and sit there for an hour? Do you want to go sit in the library? Do you want to meet the pastoral member staff? And you build up what they're able to do in these situations. And there's lots of conversations about this because some people just want to go, right, for two weeks, we're going to do car park visits. Then we're going to go into the school. Then we're going to do this. Then we're going to do that. Then we're going to do this. They plan it all out. Right. It's like, you can't. You need to be more reactive and you need to respond to what they are feeling and how they are behaving. Yeah. And we are dynamic people. We don't do the same things every day. We do things out of routine and structure, but we don't feel the same things every day because, as we know, you could have the best ever in school or the best ever at work, go home that evening, have a crap evening because something's wound you up or friends annoyed you through a text message or... And then the next day is sort of like written off because you wound up from the day before. So you've got to work with that dynamicism and like, you know, you've got to understand that one day is good, the next day could be bad, next four weeks could be brilliant and then have a bad day. It's, it's going to shift and move. So when you do it, you do it at a pace of what the child is happy with. And is um, it's written in one of the books by Heidi Mavere called Your Child's Not Broken, where she talks about her experiences with school avoiding behaviors with her child. And they got fixated on hit the child just touching the gate. Okay. Go in, just touch the gate. Like, touch the gate. It's fine. It's safe. You can just touch the gate. Mm. And because of the pressure being told to touch the gate set them back because they were being felt like they were pressurized to do something they weren't ready to do because right. it was only to, it was only to touch a gate, which for a typical person who has not got a high level of stress to touch a gate, it's like, yeah, just touch a gate. Yeah. But if you're a child who is feeling stressed and feels like they're being pressured to do something, they don't want to do it because also the fear becomes of if I can do that, then what else will they expect me to be able to do? And they're already pre-thinking the next seven steps they might be expected to do. So we've had it now with children where they've got to school and like, you know, they sat there in like a well-being hub for two hours a day and they've done that now for two weeks and then they'll stop coming in. You're like, what happened? They're like, oh, well, I felt that if I was doing that, I would then have to do something more. Yeah. 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 Like, like, yes, but also no, because we wouldn't do the next bit until you said you were ready for it. Mm. And they get that fear because they're already preempting. If I can do this, then I'll have to do this. They're already jumping ahead of their plan. It's like, but no, our plan is today and then tomorrow and then the next day. Yeah. But obviously that's how I do it and that's how I approach it. How schools then approach it is differently, and that's why I then got to sit with them in meetings and tell them, like, no, we're not doing that. We can't do that. We're not doing They're that. Not ready. Yeah, we're not and, doing that. And the problem then becomes all schools have their own systems. So, obviously, yourself mentioned you went to Brintig. I do work with Brintig. They do not have a well-being hub. They have a devodal class, which is a classroom for children who are anxious, but it's full. Oh, I've got some students in that school who are anxious not attending, but they can't go to there because it's full. Right. So it's like, so they going, so what else have we got? Yeah. We've now, they've had to think on their feet and put in different plans in because they haven't got the resource there. But then I go to another school like CCYD, College Coming Out of Darwin, where I've done work for two years there now. They have a wellbeing hub. So we go, okay, when, you, when we get to the point you're safe to come to school, we will go to the wellbeing hub. You can stay there for as long as you need to, you can leave when you need to. It's all on your call. And over time, we'll increase your time in that well-being hub 
until you're ready to shift across the lessons. And then you'll have the dual approach. You can have both spaces. And then when you feel comfortable in classes, you go to the classes, but the well-being hub is still open to you. If you yeah. get four lessons in, you go, I can't do lesson five, just go to the well-being hub. That makes sense. And then you give them that, like the option and the 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 way, not the way out. It is a way out, but it's the it's more of a like a safety net as well. The, they know and, that the option is there. And these are the things that often get mis, misconstrued. It's like when a child gets to a place, like, you know, we've had them where they're attending like a full day. And it's like, I don't sign them off until I see it is all okay. Like, yeah. I'm not sort of like, you know, you've done six months work with me, sign off, ta hope all the best. No, I keep working with the child until the child is safe. I'll slowly step back, but I'm not completely gone because, you know, you've got to be there just in case, I say safety nets. So even with them, when they do have their back in class, we still keep the well-being referral open as they do in CCYD because they've got to all be done through referrals. So we keep that open. So they might not go down there for six weeks, but we're not yeah. going to go, right, we're going to pull that referral away. No, that referral stays there until yeah. the child more or less shows they don't need to go there. And then they go back to the school system, which is then going to pastoral and get a note to go down there. We have it. They work with me. We do a referral or any other child in the school. If there's a, a period of time in which they need to go to the well-being, it's done through a referral. So we work with what the child needs in that moment in time and just go with it and then build the plan around them. And yes, yeah, so that's all the sort of stuff I'm doing now. And then on top of that now is getting into, you know, I've had to speak to the local authority and the youth emotional health teams because the work I'm doing is touching on the work they're doing, but they weren't too sure of the work that I was doing. So I had to inform them of that. And now they're trying to work with me. Cam's thing again. How does that whole sort of thing work? Like the, it's, it's a completely different area to anything that I've ever done. Selling services into schools. So <laughs> you, I guess, you know, is it is it the school? Is it local authority? How, how do you get your name out there and how do you get the work with the schools and get get involved with them um difficulty i think is the word especially in bridgend because the schools have gone through a massive budget cut so all schools in the bridgend local authority had two percent cut from their budgets this year and i think they're in line for a one percent cut next year as well and the local authority generally has not got a lot of ex of expenses to spare which is quite apparent when you see people that I talk to in the local authority are like, yeah, we've been told not to buy stationery and to buy our own diaries to right. try to save money, not to print and do things digitally and all that sort of stuff. So my first sort of thing was, like I said, when I first started, I emailed every single school in the borough. I was on the phone to one of the schools within two hours. I was sat in the school the following Monday and I was starting working with the children the Monday after that. So it was quite quick. And because that school is in a particular area with a particular demographic of learner they were like we need this they've gone all the stuff that we need to do for children we'll just find a way of doing it okay so and i guess that's some like right time right place kind of right, yeah just happened to stumble in and even that it was the deputy head there who started me as well on the trajectory of look of um school avoiding children because i was doing all the looked after children with them and then he came along to me one day and went we've got these learners who are not attending school because of their emotions do you think you can help? And that then led me to reading and learning all about emotion-based school avoidance, doing courses on it to get a better understanding, learning the assessment tools and all that sort of stuff. So like I say, I, I assess 
for the understanding of the behaviors is actually as a questionnaire you can do to get the understanding of the function behind the behaviors. And then from that, it's just been a constant thing of every now and then just emailing school saying, we know it's a growing area of concern. You know, we are here to help and support. Do you want to have a chat? Because persistent absenteeism in Wales in 2018-19, it was at 5.7% of school learners. It is now at 16.3% of school learners. Oh, that's quite the jump there. Yeah. And learners who got SEN or ALN, so special education needs or additional learning needs, they are 27% likely to have persistent attendance issues. If they have free school meals, they are 47% likely. So if you've got a group of 100 kids on free school meals, the likelihood is 47% of those of attendance issues with school. That's a, a, a correlation, not correlation. causation. Yeah. Because yet again, there is no defined socioeconomic demographic of school avoidance behaviors. It doesn't say if you are in poverty, you're more likely to not attend school if you are wealthy. No, there's, it's emotion-based. Yeah. And yes, there is correlation between poverty and emotions and mental health. Like you see things from like... Um, groups like platform and all that sort of stuff, they talk quite a lot about the socioeconomic effect of on mental health and well-being. Because yes, if you don't have money for things, it is going to run hell with your mental health. So you think about that. And these like, you know, statistics are readily available now through the Welsh government and they have just released new documentation on attendance and, and that sort of stuff. Emotionally based school avoidance is mentioned in that, and as well as how it should be treated by things like education welfare. They've also done a few mislanguage stuff in there. So they've said emotionally based school avoidance is a diagnosable thing. It's not a diagnosis, it's a descriptor of a function of behavior. So the diagnosis would be your child is anxious, has depression, etc. The behavior is school avoidance. So they've yeah. worded it in there obviously i'm doing that with the schools and then not getting quite a lot did a stuff with them with the bridge and carers which opened up a door to a lot of families uh so they actually refer to me from that then the youth and mental youth emotional health team got in touch with me to ask what was i was doing because my name was being mentioned by parents then some EWOs, the education welfare officers have been in touch with me because my name's come up in attendance meetings across the local authority. My thing is because I'm doing the work, mm. I'm now getting noticed for the work that I'm doing, which is then. So Brinterian School, which is literally just up around the corner from me here, I met with the EWO last week because she was like, we have a lot of learners who are struggling. The school have said they've done all they can. So do you think you could go in and help? So, and, she gave me the email addresses for the two assistant heads. I emailed them saying, spoke to EWO, do you want to have a chat? And I'm meeting them Wednesday. It's good yeah. then that the, sort of like everything everything you're doing now is kind of a, a word of mouth referral or awareness almost. Like people are aware it of is. the work you're doing and they want the work that you're doing because they're aware of it. And like I've said to lots of people, I'm not here for doing this for like, you know, you see some people need to go to award ceremonies or like, you know, the National Mental Health Awards. You know, you nominate yourself. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. We're not doing that because I'm not here to get shiny little plaques to put on the wall and to be look at all this amazing work that I've done. Mine is like, I'm just going to just get on with it. And because it is essentially me, I haven't got the capacity either to do all the other networking stuff. Mm. So I've gone to like a come to half 
regional partnership board neurodiversity hackathon as they called it which is great but it meant i couldn't do any support for the day i couldn't see any children couldn't meet any families couldn't do anything because my whole day was spent up there doing that i do normally go on to the barbell the bridging action voluntary organization groups and i'm part of children and families group. yet again i can't always go to that because i gotta see kids yeah there's that uh, drug alcohol and mental health one i can't always go to that because i've got to do work but mm. i need also be visible to these people to get the work so it's like i'm in this cash 22 so it's like if i just do work and do good work people will share my work from being on these forums and stuff i have now got a working relationship with come Taft mind which is obviously based up in mirtha i speak quite regularly to the ceo up there and i've actually now been brought on by them externally to do supervision so to make sure they're doing the best work they can for their employees i go and meet their employees and sit and talk to them so one of them works with cams in bridgend i meet her at the hospital we sit in costa we have a coffee and we talk about what work is she doing how is that work going what she thinks would be better and i then give her guidance on what she's doing as well and then i feed that back to come to have mind to see like you know if things are going well she's got a few questions about this you know and then i'm doing that for lots of that sort of stuff so i'm doing them supervision and then they also want me then to probably do some training with them about some of the stuff that I do around psychoeducation, school avoidance. So they're picking on my brain then to for other things to help them. So that's my other thing now is to find people to collaborate with in partnerships. So I don't want to own all of this stuff yeah. because I am one person mm-hmm. and I have a fixed set of knowledge and skill set. Yeah. But and it- also a limited time. You know, you, you haven't got uh, an unlimited amount of hours in the day. You know, you've got a family, you've got a life outside of it. And so that's my sort of thing is I'm all about the collaboration and the development of like multi-system working. I know a woman who does lots of work with children who got what's called pathological demand avoidance, which is seen as sort of a side chain of autism where basically, you know, to put on too much demand means they back off and they do nothing. You know, it's a very, what's seen as a low arousal approach. Instead of going, put your shoes on, it's more of, right, would you mind popping shoes on the next couple of minutes? Just how you approach them for doing things is different. It's not demanding they do stuff which seems out of their control. It's giving them the sense of control and autonomy to be doing what they feel they need to do. Uh, So I'll, if somebody comes along to me and I recognize that pattern, I'll say, oh, have a chat with her because she's good at it. She knows her stuff. She has two children who live with it. And that's the biggest thing for me in all of this world that I live in. I am, as I tell everyone, because I'm always open and honest with everyone I deal with, I'm a massive imposter in the world of this school avoidance and stuff because I had no issues in school. Academically did well. I thrived. I did, you know, I was a typical child in the sense that I started school with like, especially in combo, I was getting like 90% scores. And then by the time I got to like GCSEs, it dropped down to about 70%. Right. But I always quite decent at my learning and my parents always told me the worst thing a teacher ever said to me was that if the if he keeps doing the what he's doing now he will get to be no problem right and my okay parents, like my parents were around me going why did he say that because <laughs> by doing little to no effort yeah you're get where if you put effort in you would do better they didn't they didn't go for if you put the effort in you'll get you know we can work you up. They told me that my basic level of work is a B. So yeah. what did I do? 
I did my basic level of work to get a B. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Exactly, because that's just how I was. So, yeah, no issues. And again, my child is four. No issues around going to school. He loves going to school. So I'm there, and they go into people's houses, going, "So why can't your kids attend?" Yeah, yeah. Because so yeah, like, you... I don't know. I, there's no, no. Say there's no neurodivergence in my immediate household, my immediate family. So it's like I'm working out with children who are possibly autistic or with ADHD or with other neurological conditions, things like you know even the more sort of uh, less understood things, things like, you know, you get something called like PANS, which causes uh, inflammation in the brain that causes behavioral and emotional regression. So it's like, yeah, I don't have any of that. I, have, I don't live the life that you live where you've got to have things like very strongly structured and routine, and you've got to be careful of all the different things that go on and, you know, when you can leave the house, all this sort of thing, that doesn't exist for me. Mm. So I feel like, you know, when I'm going to some people, it's like, oh, I got, I got to go somewhere. I got to go and pick my son up from school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to, I've got to see a man about a dog. Uh, got to, yeah. got to run. And we, we've been chatting for ages now, uh, including the very long chat we had before we started press the record. Um, so one final question. It's been amazing, Rob. Um, but one final question that um, just gonna want to ask: if you could do it all again start mm -hmm. from scratch uh you know leave school is there anything you do differently so anything you'd uh change you know would you want to go more into music uh like playing music performing music or something completely different uh you know do you ever wish you'd become a plasterer and could maybe do all that work in your house on your own <laughs> <laughs> it's always interesting because I did go through a phase where I thought, like, you know, why did I bother doing the whole university route? You know, the, the promise that was there when we left school to what actually turned out to be is not there. That the idea that you get a degree, you do well, you put all that time and effort in your education, you'll go on to a good paid job and it'll be all fine and grand and dandy just wasn't there. But then I don't think that I would change anything because the reason, the things that I have done have led me to where I am today. If I'd gone back and tried to build that pathway by putting the things I say, you know, I chose to do a level psychology and I went to do a psychology degree rather than music. I probably would have ended off somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Cause I mean, you know, the steps that you take obviously influence the path that you end up going down and yeah, doing yeah. a, like a, yeah, doing a psychology degree would have been, you know, it would have very much set you up in a more natural way for what you're doing right now. But that doesn't mean you see a lot of people who go to university and do something and then end up leaving university and not doing anything even remotely related to it because they realize no. they hated it. And the education of it is drilled into them so much that they, they yeah. don't want to do that anymore. And as I said, you know, the reason why I did my master's in psychology was because originally, like I said, I did my music and I almost went to music therapy and I did this carry on teaching. And then went and got a master's in psychology, not because I wanted to go and work with kids in this situation, but because I wanted a better understanding of the mindset of people in these situations. But then also because I was thinking about ed psychology, so doing educational psychology, which is another field again. So I even went to an open day in Cardiff University to look at doing that. But then I realized that wasn't quite the thing I wanted either because it wasn't specific enough in where I wanted to work. So I've now started doing this. And now part of what I do, I'm actually talking to ed psychologists. They do it like each local authority, yet again, do their own thing when it comes to their ed psychologists. 
So I was literally on Friday talking to one of the senior ed psychologists for who looks at the well-being of children from the Ronda on Friday, talking about what she do, what they do in the Ronda for school avoiding children and how we could sort of replicate that down here in Bridgen because we don't have the same system in place. So I guess the transfer of knowledge then becomes very important at that level. Yeah, so and like, you know, and like, again, everyone I meet, I'm very clear about my qualification and skill set. Like, I'm not an ed psychologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not this, I'm not that. I've done this one. Yeah, yes, I'm a member of the British Psychology Society. Yeah, but that's, like, I'm at master's level. Yeah. Like, I'm not a doctorate level. Still, you're a much, a much higher level than a lot of people uh, and then would be. My sort of thing is, like, yeah, I've had that journey of teaching, one-to-one support with learners with learning difficulties and neurodivergence, to apprentices, to prison, to BESD, to looked after, to school avoidance. So I've got lots of experiences in that 12 years of teaching to support me with what I'm doing. So I have the school knowledge, how schools run and do things. And I also have the academic knowledge of how emotions, behavior, people, and all that sort of stuff. So I can combine the two nicely together because I understand schools and I understand the people. Yeah. Or try to understand the people anyway. I can't stand uh, it. Because we're all interesting people and we're yeah. individuals. And there's no way of knowing. Uh, yeah, there's just no way. You can't, you can't understand everyone. Um, right, yeah. Rob, thank you so much for having a chat and spending your morning chatting to me i think we've, we've now been yeah we've been chatting for a couple of hours thanks so much for coming on the call um and yeah i shall i shall catch up with you soon yes we will <laughs> speak to you soon cheers mate yes. go that was episode two of the podcast wrapped up i really hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed making it i would apologize for the length but i edited it down as much as i could while still allowing for the information to come across and for the whole thing to tie together nicely as a continual story if you enjoyed that episode and you haven't listened to episode one yet that was a really interesting a very different chat with the owner of online welsh news publication nation cymru and i thoroughly recommend going back to listen to that one If you want to keep listening to these interviews as they come out, consider subscribing to the podcast. And as a new episode comes out, I'm aiming for every Monday to release a new one at the moment. It'll land right in your feed. I recorded another interview with a really fascinating guy this morning who's currently working on releasing a feature-length graphic novel, so I'm really excited about getting that one out into the world too soon. If you've got any questions or would like to know anything more about what we talked about today, feel free to drop me an email to alex at howdyou.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y-O-U.com. And I'll take a look at any emails that come across and hopefully I can get back to you with some answers. Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully you'll be tuning in again soon. Bye.